Welcome back to the DNA Papers, the podcast series that discusses the original papers in the history of our understanding of the molecule that has been dubbed the secret of life. In episode 11 today, we'll be discussing a paper that marked a turn in the tide of belief of the importance of DNA in genetics, titled Independent Functions of Viral Protein and Nucleic Acid in the Growth of Bacteriophage, this paper is an example of the mix of the mundane and the exotic that worked side by side in the making of scientific knowledge. It is also a signifier of the official coming together of a very important scientific object, namely DNA, and a prominent group of scientists in molecular biology in the 20th century, probably one of the most prominent, namely the American phage group. The paper describes a rather famous experiment that virtually every student in modern biology learns about rather early in the course of their studies. Called the Hershey and Chase experiment for the two authors of the paper, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase, this experiment made use of both an ordinary kitchen blender and the state-of-the-art materials known as radioisotopes to show that DNA and DNA alone was the carrier of hereditary or genetic information. Now, listeners who've been following the series might be pleased to hear that finally, as we enter the final third of the podcast series, there is a paper that refers to this molecule explicitly as DNA. Paradoxically, and science as well as this podcast is full of paradoxes, this is the only paper in the second half of the series in which the DNA molecule was not the main object of study. The fact that it provided the most widely accepted evidence that DNA was the stuff of genes, I'm using shorthand here, was unexpected. And before giving any of the details, I'll turn the discussion over to our panel of guests who have a lot of experience and insights to shed on the subject. First of all, I'm thrilled to introduce, for the first time in this series, historian of science Angela Kreger, professor in the history department at Princeton University. She is such an integral presence in the history of science community that it's sometimes easy to forget that she actually received her PhD in biochemistry and only later made the shift to history of science. Her specific tie-in to this episode of the DNA Papers is her work on the history of the use of radioisotopes in biology and medicine, a central feature of the experiments discussed today. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. Next, I'd like to offer a warm welcome back to Jeffrey Montgomery, who by now must be a familiar voice to those who've been following the recent episodes of the podcast. A science writer who was assistant to the president for special projects at Rockefeller University, Jeff had the opportunity to meet with and interview many of the authors of the various papers featured in the series, including Alfred Hershey, the senior author of the paper discussed today. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us yet again in the series. Thank you, Nirja, and it's a real honor to be here with the real experts, Angela and Bill but I will provide my perspective also. Thanks. Last, but by no means least, we have another returning visitor in Bill Summers, William C. Summers, to give him his full name, a molecular biophysicist and historian of science or a history of science aficionado who retired from Yale University not too long ago. Bill was last here in the very first episode of the series where he offered what he called his perspective from the early days of working with DNA on the bench. His presence in today's episode is much more as a historian of science, as he's the author of a very recent book on the American phage group with the same title, one of the heads of which was Alfred Hershey, whose questions about bacteriophages led to the development of the experiments described in today's paper. Welcome back, Bill, and delighted you could make it back. Thank you, Nircha, and glad to be back with colleagues that I've gotten to know over the years to discuss this really interesting piece of work. Okay, so let's get down to the actual questions. And my first question 
is what is this paper about could each of you give in your own words uh, an elevator pitch so to speak about this paper so before this paper there were already members of the phage group who were trying to see as genes were transferred from one generation of phage to the other whether there was also a material transfer so in other words were the genes carried by atoms that were the same from the parent to the progeny. And several experiments had suggested that about 30% of the atoms, at least the phosphorus 32, in a parent phage when it infected a bacteria was transferred to its children phage, the many phage that were made in the cell before it burst and released the new viruses out to infect other bacteria. It was clear that that 30% wasn't probably protein, and yet most people thought that genes were proteins. So what Alfred Hershey did after seeing electron micrographs of phage that showed that the kind of space capsule-like protein of the phage looked like it stayed on the outside of cells at infection, he realized that if you could label the protein and the nucleic acid of the phage separately, you could try to differentiate their functions. And so this is a really elegant experiment. And he even said a few years ago that these discoveries that inspired the experiment, quote, literally forced Hershey and Chase to perform the following experiment. So he really saw this as the next natural step in a progression of experiments that had preceded his own with Chase. Thank you. Bill. Yeah, I think that Angela has sort of set it up correctly in that this was the experiment in a series of experiments that have the, the sort of intellectual trajectory had started some time before. And the thing that interests me when reading these papers is that the word growth appears so often in, in the titles. I believe this one's something about the growth of phage. And they talk about reproduction. And looking back, the phage group really was interested in the mystery of how this organism, phage, if we want to call it that, could, could grow inside the cell. And a paper, which I hope we will get to later, really set the stage for some of the thinking where they actually looked inside the bacterium while the phage was going. And mysteriously, doesn't seem that way to us now, but mysteriously, the parents were missing in, in growth of, of cells and paramecium all the way up to humans. The parents never disappear. The progeny comes out somehow. But in the case of phage and turns out other viruses, the, the parents disappear. And so this led to the whole notion of what's going on during this period of growth. And this is really, in some sense, a growth experiment where they could tear it apart with isotopic techniques that Angela has written about and begin to understand the growth at the molecule level. And phage were an ideal source because it only had two kinds of molecules. And I think this is, as she said, an elegant experiment that gets at this sort of reductionistic approach to growth. Thank you. And Jeff? Well, following up on both Angela and Bill, and Bill just talked about this mysterious finding from Gus Dorman, that when you opened up the bacteria after it had been infected, the supposed viral invader had vanished. There was no sign of the original parent. And that leads to a one way of looking at it that I think is this paper that's fun, but also scientifically and historically illuminating, is that it gave us the first true key to the enigma that Hershey's fellow Nobel laureates, Max Delbruck and Salvador Luria, had compared to a kind of locked room murder mystery the reproduction of a bacterial virus occurring only in the bacterial cell may be said to proceed behind a closed door Delbrook and Laurie had written in 1942, so 10 years before this paper was published. The experimenter can follow the virus up to the moment it enters the cell and again after liberation from the cell, that is after the virus has reproduced a hundredfold and killed the cell by bursting it open. There is as yet no way of telling what goes on within the cell except by circumstantial evidence. And what is so fascinating and beautiful and revealing about this 1952 Hershey Chase paper is how they use radioactive tracers, phosphorus 32 for phage DNA and sulfur 35 for phage protein, 
in a converging set of experiments culminating in the famous blender experiment to penetrate this closed door and solve the initial steps of this locker room mystery of phage reproduction. They show that the tadpole shaped virus, this murderous creature, never actually enters the cell in order to reproduce as all researchers before them had tacitly assumed, even though no one had been able to see the virus enter with the electron microscope. No, this tadpole shaped virus, this murderous creature is really a kind of hypodermic needle that binds to the outside of the cell and then injects its DNA into the inside of the cell. The phage virus is a hypodermic needle made of protein that injects its DNA genes into a cell. That's the picture that emerges from this paper. And while Hershey expresses this conclusion rather cautiously at first, like Avery did in 1944, the results of his experiments with Chase were much easier to visualize and fit into then current understanding than Avery's results in 1944. So this 1952 paper is very properly considered the great, if belated, counterpart to the 1944 Avery transformation paper and focusing attention on DNA as the genetic material, the secret of life itself. And it also provided the first true key to what is arguably the greatest locker room murder mystery of all time. Well, thank you, Jeff and others for that very colorful description of this paper and in giving me the answer to this question about what the paper is about, you've actually already begun to lay the context for this paper. And so I'm going to get to a couple of key words that were raised in your answers and ask you to expand on those so as to give a bit more intellectual context. I would like for you all to expand a little bit more on who were Hershey and Chase. And you mentioned the leaders of the phage group, but what the phage group was and what their role was here and what the main objective was of this paper, which you already mentioned, but I'd like for you to explicate that a bit more. And finally, Jeff made allusion to a blender and I'd like for somebody to expand on that as well. Let me give a bird's eye view of, of who these folks were as far as I know. Al Hershey was a Midwesterner. He was a student at Michigan State University where he got his PhD in, I believe it was physiology and bacteriology or chemistry and bacteriology. And he was working on immunological problems. And immunology was certainly a, a mysterious field, almost as mysterious as it is today. And he uh, eventually went to work and had a job at the Washington University in St. Louis under a early pioneer of phage work, Jacques Braden from Brenner, who had worked at the Rockefeller University and then was chairman of microbiology at WashU. That's probably where he got introduced to phage, but he was using phage there in his earliest work as an immunological target because it turns out one of the branches of phage research that is somewhat forgotten was that immunology played a very important role in the early days. So that is, you could distinguish one phage from another by its immunological specificity. And inactivating phage with antiserum was a tool used to kill off phages that you wanted to get out of the way. So that I think that having an immunological expert was a useful adjunct in the early phage work. In the course of his immunological work, he found that there were variants and the variants had the aspect of mutants. And so I think it was this kind of thing that led him into more genetic studies. Phages lended themselves very well to that. And he was recruited to go to Cold Spring Harbor in the late 40s. He developed a lab at Cold Spring Harbor focused on phage genetics in a somewhat formal sense, as opposed to a biochemical sense. But I think being a chemist, he's not afraid of chemistry. And so this is at a time when he did have contact with scientists named Martin Kamen at Washington University who was an early proponent of using radioisotopes for metabolic studies. And there were some interesting papers, which we will probably get to, about that early work with radiation biology. But I do think that this sort of set the stage for him to do this kind of work that he's doing. Martha Chase was a recent college graduate who was working as a laboratory technician at Colston Harbor, as it turns out, between college and going to graduate school. Her subsequent career was marred by personal difficulties such that this was the high point of actually her scientific career, but it made her forever famous, I think. I want to jump in and say a little bit more about 
Al Hershey's interaction with Martin Kamen, because Martin Kamen is such an interesting figure. So he was teaching at Washington University right after World War II. This is after he was actually fired from the Manhattan Project. He was working with E.O. Lawrence in what's now the Lawrence Berkeley Lab and was then called the Radiation Lab in trying to develop the technologies, including nuclear reactors, to make the first atomic weapons. And Kamen was the person who was really doing the radiochemistry to identify different nuclides that were being produced by the neutron bombardment in these early reactors. And he understood that you could use reactors not just to make fission materials for the bombs, but also to make specific radio elements, which could be used in science and medicine. And he was a big proponent of this. Unfortunately, he was also hanging out with other left-wing radicals in, in Berkeley and liked to play violin with them, and the FBI was tracking him. He was doing absolutely pioneering experiments with a chemist at Berkeley called Sam Rubin. They discovered carbon-14, and they also did some of the first experiments to use radioactivity to look at the molecular process of photosynthesis. Really incredibly important work. But Rubin, sadly, was, was killed in an accident with phosgene, a toxic chemical, and then Kamen was fired from the Manhattan Project. And E.O. Lawrence, after World War II, recruited a very famous chemist who became more famous, named Melvin Calvin, to pick up what Rubin and Kamen had started but didn't finish. And so Kamen left and went to Washu. At the same time, whereas Kamen had been making the radio elements that he was using, either in cyclotrons or purifying them from reactors, after World War II, the U.S. government began to make radioisotopes available from, you know, these government reactors, especially one in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So people, instead of making radioactive elements themselves or getting a physicist on their campus to make them, could actually apply to the Atomic Energy Commission, as the successor to the Manhattan Project was, was called, to get a shipment of a particular kind of radioisotope. And... These nuclear reactor-produced radioisotopes also tended to be of higher specific activity than ones produced in cyclotrons, so they were even more useful. That meant if you were trying to label something, you could label more of the atoms in the material you were trying to label. So it was in that context that Hershey had already worked with Cayman. He knew how to work with these materials. And from Cold Spring Harbor, as he was setting up his lab, he decided to go ahead and get set up to work with radioactivity as well. So I just wanted to, to highlight how that background with Cayman, and they actually did some very important radiobiology experiments as well in trying to do this tracer work. It really led to his later work at Cold Spring Harbor with radioisotopes. I would like to ask Angela to back up a little. We've been talking about radio tracers, radioisotopes, and for our generalist audience, if you could just break it down a little bit as to exactly what is meant by radio labeling and what exactly were the type of experiments, how exactly did they help in biology? Yeah, I'll, I'll be really happy to do that. So a radioisotope is a variant of an element which has a different number of protons or neutrons, so it's unstable in its nucleus. But chemically, it's identical to other kinds of, uh, of this element. So for instance, C14 has a heavier nucleus, C is for carbon here, than carbon-12, which is just the normal carbon that isn't radioactive. And what happens is that these heavier elements, they're unstable and the nucleus breaks down. And when that reaction happens, that transmutation event, it kicks out a form of radiation. There's a few different forms of radiation. Uh, there's alpha, beta, gamma. But the thing is that that kind of radiation can be detected because it you know, sends out ionizing radiation into the area around that atom. And so people realized that you could actually use this as like a little tiny, almost like a flashlight or something. You could watch the radioactive decay, these little emanations of radioactivity, to see where that atom was in a sample. And this is especially important in biology and medicine because organisms are constantly transforming the molecules in them into other things. 
And if you can label the atom of a molecule or a compound, and it then undergoes chemical transformations, you can see what it turns into over time. And that's why it was so useful for tagging a gene and then being able to see you know, what happens to the atoms that are in that genetic material as it's being transformed and you know, growing, to use that old-fashioned word, into a next generation of virus. And I just want to mention this one experiment that's so interesting that Hershey and Kamen did with Howard Guest at WashU. This was right after World War II. They were actually trying to do exactly the kind of labeling experiment that the Hershey Chase experiment later does. They were using radioactive phosphorus and trying to see what happens if you label these bacteriophage with radioactive phosphorus, which means it's going to label the DNA, what happens to that label after it goes into the cell. And because people were busy teaching, they froze the samples of this material before they actually analyzed where the radioactive atoms had gone after you know they infected the bacteria. And they found that, in fact, when those frozen samples sat over time, that when they tried to analyze the material, that a lot of the phage in the sample had died. It suddenly had this what would be called a low titer. It wasn't as effective anymore. And they were like, but it was frozen. How could it have died if it was frozen? Usually it wouldn't have that effect. It's because that the radioactive decay in the phosphorus atoms was actually damaging the genes of the phage and killing it. And so, this is called a suicide experiment, and there's a whole set of experiments that then phage researchers undertook to try to figure out exactly how this happens and how the gene of a phage is damaged by this little radioactive explosion of a P32 as it breaks down. It turns out to be really complicated to figure out what's going on, and there's all kinds of other effects that come into play. So, you know, 10, 20 years were spent trying to figure that out this effect. But what's interesting about it is that it illustrates that radioisotopes can be used in one of two ways. I've emphasized how radioisotopes are used as tracers. You're following an atom through different chemical transformations or even through the movement of something through a body or through a cell. But it can also be used as a source of ionizing radiation to damage something biologically, to damage genes or damage another part of, of a cell. And these are the two kinds of ways in which radioisotopes are used. We hear about people getting radiation treatment for cancer. That's really the, you know, the damaging effect of radiation that's being used. But many of the examples of use in biology are more the tracer uses, where it's not the fact that it can damage things, but that you can actually see that, that little flash of radioactivity as an atom breaks down and is moving to, to locate where it is. Okay, Jeff, you had follow-up question. Yes, I just wanted to briefly go back to something that Bill alluded in sort of the prehistory. I guess it's the post-history of Hershey's original involvement with uh, radioisotopes that Angela described at Washington University. But what he told me was his first real involvement with phage as a biological object doing interesting experiments. You asked how I got started in phage. I didn't get seriously started until I read the first Delbrook-Luria papers. Then I could see they're after something in a sensible way. But then for a long time, my interest was solely genetic. And as I hoped to get, he was going to be giving a, a round table with many of the pioneers that were around at the time of the original Avery 1944 paper. As long as your interest is in heredity, who gives a damn what the substance is? It's irrelevant because, of course, classical genetics had been established as this mathematical science that could track genes through generations, map the relative locations of genes without having any knowledge of the actual material substance of genes. And I also just wanted to point out there's a very interesting early exchange during this period so the paper that I quoted from, from uh, Delbrook and Lurie at the beginning is from 1942, and I think they met Hershey in 1943. The three of them, as I said, won the Nobel Prize 1969 together. And Hershey wrote Delbrook, and this is in uh, Angela's wonderful book on tobacco mosaic virus, the life of a virus. Science is very discouraging. There are a number of things I would like to do with phage but I seem to be hung up at the moment on the first question, which is whether phage is what you and Laurier think or what Bromfenbrenner, the head of his lab, and I think. I can't say I have any brilliant ideas how to decide this. You appear to regard this question as settled. 
And I think this relates now jumping ahead to the paper we're going to be discussing, which was deeply influenced the key experiment, the blender experiment, which we'll describe by electron micrographs that had been made of T2 phage invading a bacterial cell. They had come up with a paradox that is stated in that first paper, which of course focused exactly on what Bill described at the beginning, the central problem, and Delbrook says later, all our work circles around this central problem is how a bacterial virus replicates inside a cell. And that was their model for what Delbrook and Luria considered the, the deepest problem in biology, which is how a gene replicates. How can a gene replicate, mutate, and then replicate these mutations in turn? That was the central mystery of life. And in fact, it was picked up in the famous book by Schrodinger, What is Life, that inspired so many people to go into molecular biology, including Jim Watson, Francis Crick, Seymour Benzer, Morris Wilkins. So I think in this early period, after he reads the Delbrook-Luria papers, Hershey is sort of casting about for a research program to follow. And the question was, how big is this virus? Is it just this little small molecular weight thing? Or is it what they Delbrook-Luria and Tom Anderson, the electron microscopist, had actually seen on electron micrographs, which is an actual entity, this tadpole-shaped entity, which has a high molecular weight. And Hershey told me that in fact, perhaps because of that early uncomfortable experience of looking at these electron micrographs that did not conform with the thinking in the lab, that he always hated cytology and really tried to shut his eyes to this electron microscopy, which was actually very inconclusive what was happening until it became relevant for his work. And until he could see, start to visualize this tadpole-shaped creature as a, and this is a quote, a hypodermic needle, so to speak. And the, his first research project had nothing to do with chemistry or radioactive isotopes after this period that Angela had described. In fact, it's purely genetic. And he really made his reputation as the person who established phage genetics. So Delbrook had discovered what we now know to be genetic recombination between different genetically marked phage strains, but he did not believe it was genetic recombination. And it was Hershey who really pursued that, who he told me he taught himself genetics, read the Sturdivant Beetle text, Introduction to Genetics, that was classic then, went to Caltech and he wrote this paper. And he was really the counterpart to Josh Lederberg in E. coli. And so that's the background before he now went into the chemistry of the gene. I just want to add to that, that what made Hershey's contribution so important is that with his graduate student, Raquel Rotman, they actually were able to map genes. So this was the classic way in which T.H. Morgan and Sturdivant and Bridges and all the other people working in the fly room, this is the classic way that they identified genes was that they figured out where the genes resided in relation to each other on a chromosome. And what Hershey did is he showed that you could use the same process by tracking number of recombinants to identify where the phage genes were with respect to one another. And he hypothesized that then there had to be a chromosome, some sort of a chromosome that those genes resided on. And interestingly, Delbrook, who, who made kind of the same finding with Bailey, he called it an induced mutation. He really didn't see the importance of this as linking bacteriophage up to this much longer history of chromosomal mapping as a way to kind of get your hands on what a gene is. And Hershey's, you know, that first map that he drew with Rotman based on their identification of, of how these two different traits were recombining in phage is just a really elegant contribution. And it also illustrates what was so innovative about Hershey and so powerful is that he was really virtuosic in both genetics and biochemistry. And I think there were, within the people working on phage, there tended to be people who were really interested in the genetics or the biophysics, and others who were really interested in the biochemistry. And Hershey was able to do both. And he even after this, you know, was looking at kind of the, the physical chemistry of, of like, you know, kind of topology of chromosomes. He was just an incredibly versatile scientist. One of the points about these papers that sort of brings together what Angela and Jeff have said 
it's I think the technology because every time you talk about this paper, technology is there. It's called the Blender experiment, and you have to know about P32 and S35 and how their biochemistry is different. So it's it's into isotopes, and we sort of forget that isotopes had been used for these kind of tracers before. But S35 was a, a new use, and it had to do with the technology of being able to measure it. If you look back at, say, some of the earlier work, they used uh, N15. Now, N15 is not radioactive. N15 just weighs differently, and you had to have a mass spectrometer in order to assay the presence of N15. Not very many people had mass specs. You had to tinker. You had to build a lot of this stuff yourself. It's not a buy-off-the-shelf kind of stuff. And neither was it with the radioactivity. And Hershey talked about having got this setup of a new counter. Now you go in and you just put your sample into the some big box and it prints out your publication the next day. And it was that different in those days. Uh, S35, as it turns out, sulfur 35 was discovered in the early 30s, I think, if I recall. But it, it has a very soft radiation and it was very hard to detect. And P32 happens to have a very strong radiation that's easy to detect with a Geiger counter. In the late 40s, the modification of the Geiger counter came along. A Geiger counter is a, is a container which has a window at one end that's very thin that the radiation goes through, and then it, these, the radiation causes ionization inside, and a little basically breakdown of electrical conductivity happens, and you get a, a, a micro lightning strike inside, which your electronics can detect. It turns out that the window was too thick for the S35 isotope emanations to go through. So somebody got the idea, and I can't remember who did it, but that they had a windowless counter, which the window was not there, but it meant you had to flow a certain kind of gas, which constructed the little lightning strikes or damped them properly, and they're called a gas flow counter. And you had a tank of what's called quench glass sitting next to it, and it flowed down over your sample, and you had to put the sample in just right. There's an awful lot of fussiness going on here. So, you know, it took hands-on kind of technology, which we forget, you know, in these days of off-the-shelf automated equipment. And so I think that thinking back to the technical challenge, not very many labs could do this. I think a counter of this sort was available in the 48-49. So he, he got, you know, he was right in there at the beginning. And the other thing we talk about is the blender which I really think is an interesting history. It was often called the Waring Blender. Now, people wonder who Waring was. Waring was a guy named Fred Waring, who was a musician. He was the, probably America's most famous radio musician. He went to the University of Pennsylvania and sang songs with his buddies. And they had a very famous group called Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians. But he was also a businessman. And in the 30s, he invested in a company that was making kitchen blenders or mixers that didn't work very well. I think he actually was an astrophysicist or some sort of an engineering kind of major at Penn. And he re-engineered the blender and, and then sold it as the wearing blender. And interestingly, it was first used by Tom Anderson, who's been mentioned before, who was a professor at Pennsylvania. And I think it would be very interesting for somebody to unpack the way the blender got from Fred Waring to Tom Anderson, and hence it was pretty obvious how it got to Hershey. The one way it didn't get to Hershey was that through Martha Chase being a woman and knowing about how to use it in the kitchen, which is sort of an urban myth that you hear around a lot. It was certainly not that way. But anyhow, I think technology really is central to this paper. You could not have done this experiment without the isotope technologies of counting and new isotopes, and the kind of technology of the simple kitchen, I won't say kitchen aid because that's as much proprietary as wearing is, but anyhow, I just wanted to emphasize that the technological aspects of this work make it so, in a way, straightforward to understand when you see the technology, but it did depend on somebody to be good in the lab. Yes, so when I asked Hershey how he first embarked on the path of isotopic tracer experiments that led to the Hershey Chase and the famous blender experiment that Bill was just talking about. He said, I had set up equipment for doing radioisotope work following Seymour Cohen, who did phaser experiments with isotopes. So then naturally I was casting about for how to use the techniques. Yes, this question about motivation is always hard to answer. And his position sort of was, 
that he had these techniques and I'm not sure, perhaps Angela and Bill know, and I, this is sort of a question to them, how he decided to pursue this line of research that had already started with Kotzleff and Putnam and then was also being pursued by Watson and Malo, because his first work was really very similar to theirs. And my understanding, at least my reading of that, it was, it was quite inconclusive, these early tracer experiments with using just phosphorus 32, because they would find that there was just something like 35% transfer between parents and progeny. And Seymour Cohen suggested a second generation experiment, because if you believed Avery and you believed that, that the genes of phage were made of DNA, then perhaps only part of that DNA was genetic and the rest of it wasn't. So in the second generation, you would expect 100% transfer, but that's not what they found. And then initially, when they started to use sulfur, and I was very illuminated by Bill's comments on how that's a much more difficult tracer to deal with experimentally, initially they were finding 35% transfer of sulfur. And one of the first things I think that, uh, and that's reported by Hershey and Chase in a Carnegie report in 1950 to 51. And they, they, one of the first things they had to do was to show that that was actually a contaminant, that sulfur was not being passed from parent to progeny phage. And there must have been some period in between where I think some of the papers that are cited in the Hershey Chase paper, particularly by Roger Harriet, were followed up and he really embarked on a different line of research. You know, we, we haven't mentioned how the classic paradigm for dealing with this central problem of phage reproduction in the cell was to basically treat the cell as a black box. This is the biochemist Seymour Cohen's characterization, and you could manipulate the input, the parents, and after the cell blew up with 100 replicants, you could analyze the progeny, but you really weren't getting inside the cell. And in a way, and perhaps Angela and Bill would disagree, I think that these original first and second and third generation isotopic tracer experiments is a little bit in that vein. You're not getting inside the cell. You're just tracking parent to progeny, and then the progeny become the parent for a second generation. And so they made a decision or embarked on this experimental path to use radioactive tracers to get inside this central problem of what is actually going on in these initial steps of infection. And I don't know if, if either of you has insight into that, how that happened, and maybe perhaps you could comment on that. Yeah, I do have a little bit I can say about that. I mean, some of the technical tweaks that Hershey and Chase introduced are really, really simple. So as you mentioned, their preliminary experiment with S35 gave the same sort of results that Mello and Watson and others had seen with P32, namely that about a third of the label from phage protein ended up with the progeny. And that was about the same amount percentage-wise as if you used a P32 label. So, but what they did though, is that they used a little bit more salt and that actually helped with having the labeled protein not transferred. But the other critical innovation, as Bill already mentioned, was the blender, the agitation of those cells that have been infected because that actually shook the little protein off so that when they then separated the cells from the supernatant, those protein ghosts, as they were called, were in the supernatant and not with the cells. So what had been happening when the S35 label was being carried is that those protein ghosts, those little tadpole things that were stuck on the cells, were simply continuing to stick on the cell. So it was the combination of changing the salt concentration and the agitation that got them off. And that then was you know, really critical in being able to differentiate the behavior of the P32 and the S35, that they were different. And I mean, there's some ambivalence or there's some uncertainty, I should say, in, in the literature as to whether Hershey expected the result that he got. According to Wachlow Savalsky, he actually expected the protein to be the genetic material, and so that S35 label to be transferred. Savalsky actually says it was, you know, he was dismayed when he found that the protein wasn't transferred and the nucleic acid was.
But at the same time, we know that Hershey was really impressed by the Avery et al. experiment and also by the Anderson micrographs and by the work of Roger Harriet, all of which suggested that that protein may be outside the cell and the nucleic acid may be a critical component. So in any case, part of what's interesting about Hershey is he actually retained an open mind even after the Hershey Chase experiment because continuing work suggested that a little bit of protein was transferred into the cells. He thought about 1%. So he thought, well, possibly there's a little protein role that's involved in that genetic transfer. And in the end, I think that ended up being an artifact. But Hershey clearly really tried to have an open mind to any result. And it was manipulating these conditions in a very simple way and using the blender that let him differentiate the sulfur-30 from the P32. Bill, I was going to just ask you, actually, as Subalski's student, as his graduate student, do you have anything to add to what Angela says? I, I have nothing to add. I heard those comments from Botswaf several times, and it made some sense in that Hershey, being an immunologist, was sort of a protein chemist kind of person, but still, you know, these are all post-hoc, way after the event kind of reconstructions, and so it's hard, hard to say. And my question, to simplify things, I'm not sure if this was made clear, but the idea of labeling these things is that sulfur was present only in proteins and phosphorus only in nucleic acids. And this is why labeling these two things could allow Hershey and Chase to track where the DNA went versus where the proteins went. And they were able to show that the proteins stayed outside. I just had a quick question about that, which is, in some ways, this goes back to the very first paper that we covered by Miescher, who used the same criterion, sulfur versus phosphorus in protein versus back then something new that he named nuclein, to differentiate between these two kinds of compounds. And then you're coming back full circle many decades later. And does any of you have anything to comment about that? Bill? Yeah, I was just going to comment about that. <laughs> if you look at the precursors of this that we've alluded to, and there were two major groups that were working on, actually three. One is Seymour Cohen, who's been described before. The other was Frank Putnam and, and Lloyd Kozlov in Earl Evans' lab at the Chicago. Now, Earl Evans was one of the early pioneers in using isotopes to study metabolism. And it turns out that you know, most of what we know about metabolism was deduced from overfeeding rats and collecting their urine and remarkable deduction. But with the advent of isotopes, we could do these so-called tracer experiments that Angela asked. And Seymour Cohen was educated in that tradition. And he worked with Wendell Stanley, who was well-known as a chemist. And the questions that interested a lot of people was, how are proteins made? Proteins are mysterious. They knew that they were enzymes, but they were big molecules. They had structure. We really didn't understand how they were made. We understand how glucose was made and how other small molecules were made, but these big molecules sort of were mysterious. And so if you look at Cohen's work and Kozlov's work especially, and also work from Angus Graham and French in, in Canada, they were interested in where does the substance of phage come from? What is the precursor like? Glucose is the precursor of glycogen, and amino acids are the precursors of protein. Well, what are the precursors of phage? What did they get their material from the medium? Was it already a, something in the cells they were using? So a lot of their experiments were tracing isotopes in the very classical, well, sort of classical because it wasn't that many years old, but, but still, if you fed an amino acid or a phosphorus or a nucleotide to a cell, what ended up in phage and where did it go? Were the progeny phage made out of breakdown of cells stuff, or where was the pools of precursors? And so they were doing a lot of experiments that were classical precursor product kind of things. The idea of whether the parents' material in the phage ended up in the progeny was sort of, in a way, a variant on that, but it was really an original kind of variant. And I think that that's, in a way, where Hershey's experiment took off from and built on the experiments of the people who were looking at what is the where does the material of growth of phage come from? 
And I happen to have a copy of Kozlov's thesis here. And it's interesting in the end, he's, it's really couched in terms of the big problem is understanding protein biosynthesis. How are proteins made? And phage were known to have proteins in them. But he says, the study of virus reproduction then as an approach to the general problem of protein synthesis can hardly be as straightforward as originally conceived. <laughs> and this is really a, a, a lot about how when you give P32 to a, a, a cell, a culture, and grow phage in it, how much of the phage P32 in the progeny came from the cell and how much came from the media that you added and questions like that. And Cohen, too, was interested in precursor product. And somewhere in my files, I have a letter that he wrote to Stanley when he went to Paris, and he said the phage work wasn't going well, so maybe he'll go back to protein biosynthesis. But then he went on to phage anyhow. So I think, again, the context is in growth and the way growth works and how phage are the same or the different than other organisms that we're beginning to know about. The other point I'd make is that the, it was mentioned about the Mola-Watson work on how much of the parental ends up in the progeny. And I remember looking at this in the late 60s for another reason, but it was all over the map. Sometimes it was 7% transfer, sometimes it was 30, 40. It looked like 50% was a maximum. Hardly anybody got over 50%. And in some private correspondence after this, Watson actually, because they knew that there were two strands in DNA and they replicated and so on by then, he speculated that really only one strand survived in replication. And this would explain why it was a maximum. You couldn't have more than 50% transfer. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, if you just got better technology, you wouldn't lose it along the way. We still don't know where all those atoms went, but that's probably a good reason. I was interested because at that time, the rolling circle model of replication came along, and that would predict why one strand might be used as a template and thrown away, and the other one be the newly synthesized one. But the nesselson sol experiment, which you'll talk about or have talked about, sort of suggested that whatever was going on, both strands had to be thrown away equally in some way. Because I was able to separate the strands of a particular virus, I was able to show that whatever the mechanism is, both strands were equally likely to end up in that 50% progeny. So it sort of ruled out a simple rolling circle model. So even in the late 60s, people were still interested in, well, they were interested enough to publish my paper. So, but I think that we should put Hershey's paper in the tradition of trying to find out how phage were made. In a way, almost incidentally, it answered this genetic question about genes being made out of DNA. On precisely this issue, it's interesting to note that the first public presentation of the Hershey Chase results was not by Hershey or Chase, so far as I know, but was by Jim Watson, because he went to a meeting, I think this would have been 51, in Oxford for a society of general microbiology that was called the Nature of Virus Multiplication. Salvador Luria was supposed to be at that meeting because of his left-wing politics. A few weeks before the meeting, his passport or visa was denied, so he was unable to go to Oxford. He had already sent a paper ahead that was on phage reproduction and which talked about the nature of phage genes being made of proteins. In the meantime, Watson learned about the Hershey Chase results. So he was supposed to be presenting Luria's results at Oxford, but he didn't want to say that genes were made of protein because he was convinced that Hershey and Chase had shown that that wasn't the case. And so, in fact, what he did was to present the Hershey Chase results and probably some of the Luria results as well, but kind of editing out that point that Luria had thought that genes were made of proteins. Now, we often think of these as these kind of two, you know, kind of binary alternatives. Either the genes were made of protein or the genes were made of nucleic acid. And clearly, the Hershey-Chase experiment was set up to differentiate the possible roles of these two kinds of macromolecules. But it's worth noting that the word that many people were using in the late 30s and through the 40s to describe genes was not either nucleic acid or protein, but nucleoproteins. And this was because after Wendell Stanley obtained tobacco mosaic virus in pure form and thought that it was all protein, and then N.W. Peary and Bodden corrected him and said, no, there's a little bit of nucleic acid, he kind of thought about that as being a the virus as being a nucleoprotein. 
And so much of science is based on how people draw analogies between different things. Well, it so happened that many different kinds of macromolecular complexes at this time were composed of both some kind of nucleic acid, either RNA or DNA, and of protein. So TMV, bacteriophage, something that was called kappa factor, the pneumococcus transforming factor. Well, that one didn't have the protein, but it did have some DNA. Claude's microsomes, which were made of RNA and protein. Rouse's sarcomavirus, which had DNA with the protein. Mitochondria, which had RNA and protein. Chloroplasts, which were found to have RNA and protein. What were called enzyme-forming particles in yeast that were being studied by Saul Spiegelman. And also chromosomes, which had both DNA and protein. So people thought the unit, the basic unit here seems to be some sort of nucleic acid protein combination. And part of what was so important about the Hershey Chase experiment is that it refuted that idea. And in fact, in 1953, in a paper that he published in the Annals de l'Institut Pasteur, Alfred Hershey wrote, particles of T2 should not any longer be called nucleoprotein. And we live in a world now where this nucleoprotein doesn't exist anymore. And yet that term is in the literature through the 1950s. People were somehow convinced, in part because some genetic units seem to have RNA and others DNA, that there must be something special about the combination of nucleic acid and protein. And that's part of what the Hershey Chase experiment really refutes. So I just wanted to follow up on what Angela just spoke about, that the first public presentation of the Hershey Chase experiment was by neither Hershey nor Chase. It was by Jim Watson, who at this Oxford meeting, which I believe was in early 1952. And Gunter Stent has a interesting comment about the paper that Watson decided not to read, the Luria paper that Watson decided not to read, that Again, it gets back to this locked room mystery and the technique that Gus Dorman had pioneered beginning in 1948 for bursting open the cell prematurely before the phage had matured. And in the first seven minutes, they couldn't find the parental particle, which they assumed was somehow coming through the cell wall. There was no infective particle. And the first thing that they could see were what Luria started calling protein donuts. So this is the head of this tadpole that can be released from the cell. It has a little depression in the middle, so it looks like a donut. And according to Stent, that in this letter, most unfortunately, Lurie proposed that the genes of the phage reside in its protein rather than its DNA. He grounded this proposal on electron micrographic examinations carried out in collaboration with Cy Leventhal of phage-infected bacteria at different stages of the latent period. That's this period after infection. The only phage-specific intracellular structures Luria and Leventhal could discern prior to the appearance of intact progeny phage particles were empty shells of phage proteins termed donuts. They inferred that donuts are responsible for the transgenerational continuity of the virus. And in fact, Luria had published in 1950 a review called Bacterial Phage, an essay on virus reproduction, where he cites this experiment that Seymour Cohen had done with Gus Dorman that showed that DNA synthesis precedes the appearance of mature phage particles during this eclipse period, which would seem to indicate that maybe DNA is pretty important in, in the process of genetic continuity between parents and progeny. But instead, here's a sentence that is actually in this science article that Loria published in 1950. DNA synthesis immediately precedes and parallels the appearance of active phage particles and fails to take place in bacteria infected within non-reactivated phage T2, which suggests that DNA may be involved mainly in the final stage steps of the baking of active particles. So we had the, the genes made of protein donuts and DNA was baking it somehow, and that's in print. And this is too large a question to, to deal with here, but it really is absolutely remarkable how little attention the phage group paid to DNA because they knew about the Avery experiment from the beginning. In fact, there's a letter in the Caltech archives, Delbrook to Hershey, February 1944. I suppose you've seen the 
a paper in JEM by Avery, uh, finally identifying the mystery substance of pneumococcal transformation. Mursky says it's wrong, but I don't know. So it says many things that they knew about it from the beginning. Laurie would visit Avery every time he was in New York. Delbrick knew Avery. And Mursky was spreading poison about their results and saying that it was contaminant and there was some hidden protein in there. There is correspondence in this wonderful book, We Can Sleep Later, that Cold Spring Harbor published after Hershey's death that contains all kinds of material about his life. I highly recommend it. And recollections by people who knew him that contains correspondence that Hershey had with Hotchkiss, that Hotchkiss is giving him his latest papers and Hershey says, you seem to have cleared up the problem. Yet it is very difficult to find anybody in the phage group that is taking seriously the possibility that genes are made of DNA with the exception of Seymour Cohen, who cites this work very early in 1944, who actually tries to do a genetic recombination experiment reported in 1947 Cold Spring Harbor by mixing the DNA of two different strains of phage. The experiment fails for reasons that we can now understand, but it shows that he was taking this possibility seriously. But it seems as if the possibility that DNA is, or even probably that DNA is the stuff of phage genes, is kind of coalescing during this period in 1951 and 1952. And Hershey himself quotes a letter from, from Roger Harriet that I've been thinking, this is Roger Harriet to Hershey in November 1951, so just as this Hershey Chase experiment is coming together, I've been thinking, and perhaps you have too, that the virus may act like a little hypodermic needle full of transforming principle. That's Avery's DNA. That the virus as such never enters the cell, that only the tail contacts the host, and perhaps enzymatically cuts a small hole through the outer membrane, and then the nucleic acid of the virus head flows into the cell. And he actually goes on to suggest it might be possible to generate virus by just introducing the nucleic acid into the cell. Hershey responds, that's a really interesting idea. I don't know how you do that experiment. But this is really one of the first indications that I think people in the phage group are taking seriously the idea that phage genes can be made of DNA. I've been interested in how this has played out in the way we teach this experiment. And this is, a, I think, a classic example of how we elide the complexities of the real experiment and simplify it down for pedagogical purposes. I happen to look at Jim Watson's first edition of the molecular biology of the gene, and already this experiment has been schematized into this little syringe model where all the isotope of the DNA is injected and all the protein stays on the outside. And there's no, no doubt about it, of course. And it's just, I think, another example of how it's such an elegant experiment that it lends itself to be simplified into this classic paper with no, no ambiguities, no caveats, no suspicions that there might be troubles. And we do this all the time, of course, because I think you know, a lot of people have said scientific papers are a lie. They tell you, I guess Helmholtz already said that. You describe it as a you bushwhack up the mountain through the underbrush, and then you tell about how the royal road coming up the other side was the, the real route to the top. When was the book, when was that published, the first edition, with respect to the paper? 1965. 1965. Okay, thank you. Angela. So on this note of kind of elegant experiments, We've talked about the Avery experiment, which is actually more biochemically clean than the Hershey Chase experiment. The Hershey Chase experiment, which is because of Hershey's status with respect to phage workers, is much more influential in persuading people that genes are made of DNA. The other experiment that really nails the fact that nucleic acid alone is infective and hereditary is the reconstitution experiment that was done with tobacco mosaic virus just a few years later, in which workers in Stanley's virus laboratory, especially Heinz Frankel Conrad and Robley Williams, separated the nucleic acid and protein components of tobacco mosaic virus of different strains and then recombined them and infected the hybrid virus into plant cells. And what they found was that the resulting progeny had all of the characteristics 
of the strain from which the nucleic acid came and none of the characteristics of the strain from which the protein came. And about the same time, Gerhard Schramm in Tübingen showed that just bare TMV RNA alone could be infective and then produce full tobacco mosaic virus particles. So that's an experiment that is now a bit forgotten, but it's a really elegant demonstration of the complete competency of the nucleic acid portion for both infection and heredity. Yes, in fact, the Franco Conrad experiment that Angela just mentioned is exactly the experiment that Harriet was suggesting to do with phage, that the nucleic acid alone, and that was a really crucial experiment in what about 1956 that Angela mentioned. One of the wonderful things about participating in these podcasts is actually talking about the experimental details and talking about how hard it is to do experiments and find results. This is something that a phage scientist at Rockefeller, I knew pretty well, Norton Zinder, constantly emphasized to me that is rarely emphasized because, of course, you can't publish failed experiments and all these technical tricks that have to be mastered. And then so people like me who have not ever worked in a biochemistry lab can see these sort of oversimplified diagrams, let's even call them cartoons, that are published in textbook and understand conceptually what these experiments mean. But I just wanted to come back to who was Hershey and what made him such a special scientist within the phage group and within the history of biology. And I asked him that, and he said he didn't have any special gift, but one thing that he did is he could always think of something to do, and he would never give up. This is perhaps somewhat fanciful, but a lot of biologists that I know, creative biologists, feel an affinity with visual artists. And a quote from the philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi, who was a physical chemist, compared the efforts of visual perception to the efforts to make scientific discovery. The efforts of perception are induced by a craving to make sense of what it is we are seeing before us. They respond to the conviction that we can make sense of experience because it hangs together in itself. While the integration of clues to perception may be virtually effortless, the integration of clues to discovery may require sustained efforts guided by exceptional gifts. Scientific inquiry is motivated by the craving to understand things. Such an endeavor can go on only if sustained by hope, the hope of making contact with a hidden pattern of things. By speaking of science as a reasonable and successful enterprise, I confirm and share that hope. And of course, this paper resulted in this whole new picture of these early steps of phage infection that pointed attention at DNA as being the central entity that was providing genetic continuity. And in that vein, very brief quote by the great, wonderful writer, Annie Dillard, kind of making this art science connection, using these very, at the, what we would now consider pretty crude and rough tools to create this new picture of nature. Who but an artist fierce to know would suppose that a live image possessed a secret? The artist is willing to give all his or her strength in life to probing with blunt instruments those same secrets no one can describe in any way, but with those instruments, faint tracks. And I think that in the end, we really have to give credit to Hershey and Chase for using these instruments, these techniques, these, and mastering them and really giving us a new picture of the system they were studying, phage reproduction, that became the counterpart to the famous Avery McLeod-McCarty DNA transformation paper and really brought the scientific world to the realization that DNA was pretty important. Angela? So following up on Jeff's comments about Hershey as a scientist, I wanted to mention a kind of a funny story. When Hershey was introducing Gunther Stent, who was a member of the phage group and did a lot of work following up on this, especially with these so-called suicide experiments of trying to look at how P32 actually damaged phage genes once they were in a cell. Hershey said, I am a simple man. I think maybe A, maybe B, and then try to decide which is wrong. This next speaker thinks 
maybe A, maybe B, maybe C, maybe D, maybe E, and then tries to decide which is correct. And Gunther Stead definitely walked up to the microphone and said, uh, you know, I think Al has figured out my problem. I mean, I say this only because that is that description is actually very characteristic of Stent's work on these suicide experiments in the 1950s. There's like all these complicated variables going on and nothing sheds any light or eliminates any hypothesis. And Hershey's, I think, throughout his career, he thought through things really carefully conceptually. And he tried to come up with experiments that would give you clear answers, or if not, would let you design the next experiment. And that's part of why the Hershey Chase experiment is just so compelling, is that we talk about those two labeling experiments, one with the P32, one with the S35. But the paper also includes a lot of different controls that show how the results with the labeling can be reliably seen as indicating whether the protein or DNA has the kind of key function. Bill, you had something. Yeah, as long as we're in the storytelling mode, I have a story that sort of confirms that. In the mid-60s, I was interviewing with Hershey to come to his lab as a postdoc. And at the time, I was working on some statistical models of molecular behavior and so on. And I was telling him about this. And he, he said, you know, you're talking about the probabilities at the PO5 level and so on. He says, for me, if it doesn't differ by 10 to the ninth, it's not real. And he was telling me when he does the phage dilutions, he estimates where 0.05 mils are because he uses pester pipettes rather than graded pipettes. Because he says, when you're doing 10 to the ninth dilution, a power of 10 doesn't really matter. And his work is that way. I mean, the phage genetics really depended on recombination where it was zero or humongous. And the, the tightness and beauty of the phage system allowed you to do this. And I think, you know, he, he had this sort of a sense of proportion about things, which a lot of scientists don't. Okay. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, taking us to all sorts of unimagined places, at least unimagined by me when I started this podcast. And just to bring us back, I think Jeff very beautifully summed up the answer to a question that I usually ask and didn't ask explicitly, which is where this paper is. What is the place of this paper in the history of DNA. Why is it an important DNA paper? Because we took off in so many directions and it's almost equally important, if not more important, as a phage paper. And if we were ever to do a phage series, this paper will be there as well. And thank you all very much for your wonderfully illuminating comments and contributions today. And this has been a podcast from the Consortium of the History of Science Technology and Medicine in Philadelphia. I'm Nirja Sankaran, and today is October 24th. Please tune in next month when we go on to talk about the double helix.